regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Uh, welcome to the 11th episode of Datacast, and today I um, uh, have the pleasure to interview uh, Francisco Javier Carrera Arias. He is currently a data scientist slash analyst for Motion Point Corporation and a research assistant for the Clinical System Biology Group at uh, Nova Southeastern University. His current work entails performing a variety of data analysis to better inform business decisions as well as using discrete logic to analyze complex biological regulatory networks for the purpose of identifying and simulating treatment causes for chronic illnesses such as the Gulf War illness. So, uh, Francisco, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much, James, for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, I want to start out talking about your educational background. Uh, I see that you got a BS degree in um, psychology from Nova Southeastern. So, uh, what did you choose to study psychology for John Nogra? Well, to be honest, James, it's been uh, quite a trajectory for me. Like, I originally came to um, a school called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, where I started software engineering at first. But things, life happens, you no, know, and... Uh, I started realizing that perhaps software engineering as such was not for me. And one day I just literally woke up and said, like, I need a change. So I transferred schools and I originally went into biology because I was like, let's, instead of trying to study the computers from the computers, let's study the best computer there is, the human brain. So going forward a few more years, I switched biology to neuroscience and psychology. Ultimately, I had to um, just major in psychology and minor in neuroscience because I also added a minor in statistics. And it kind of all snowballed down from there. I became very interested with brain-machine interfaces thanks to my independent study that kind of became my bachelor's thesis. And I retook all the programming and software interests that I had in the beginning, ultimately becoming what I am right now, choosing this career path. I see. So, um, as you just mentioned, your focus on your degree is on um, behavioral neuroscience. So, for the audience who are not familiar with this field, can you just provide a very brief overview of what behavioral neuroscience entails? It's essentially the study of the, of the brain processes involving behavior like stress, uh, mood, uh, mood uh, clinic, uh, clinical psychology uh, conditions. Uh, you pretty much... Uh, you use um, molecular techniques like the ones you would use to study cellular neuroscience, but you apply it to more behavioral questions. I see. So um, let's say for people who are interested in learning more about, you know, sort of this uh, behavioral psychology and neuroscience, 
what are some uh, books and our websites that you could recommend for people to read up on? For neuroscience, uh, I, I, my, my, my main focus was uh, my, my favorite one is for, uh, for computational neuroscience. There's a good book, Introduction to Theoretical Computational Neuroscience by Trappenberg. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the way that the, the, the way that book was written, and it helped me a lot too. Uh, for when I took when I took that class, then uh, aside from from that book, definitely read papers. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research going on in the field, and that, I think that's like the biggest the biggest source of my knowledge. I cannot really refer to just one single book other than the one for computational neuroscience that helped me out. I just see. reading a bunch of articles. Definitely, definitely. Uh, um, and yeah, and a lot of I know that a lot of the uh, scientific journal, Nature, for example, they have like a whole like dedicated column just focused specifically on like psychology and and neuroscience. So so I think you know people can definitely check it out as well. Can you discuss your research thesis uh, as you mentioned earlier? Um, uh, I I saw that the title is on the the effects of video gaming with a brain-computer interface on physiological stress and mood. So, can you uh, elaborate more on that? I actually was reading one of this one one scientific article mentioning that uh, playing video playing a video game Tetris can uh, improve uh, the symptoms of anxiety and stress can actually decrease it. And well, my line of thought was like I already I if if a video game is just a video game like Tetris can already help with such a with. Um, with mental health like that, and I was aware of also uh, t- uh, techniques like VRET, virtual reality exposure therapy, that uh, as, as as the name says, it's an alternative to traditional exposure therapy using VR. So I decided, like, if this if these if these technologies can help with mental health, why not why not try something a little bit more different, like a brain machine interface. There was uh, there there has been interest in using brain machine interfaces for video gaming, and I thought I would give it a shot, especially given that uh, a, f- a few months before I even suggested this to my uh, advisor, Dr. Jamie Tarter, I actually purchased a, a headset from Emotive, the Deepak Plus, to essentially use for my own video gaming to try it out. So once I once I suggested that uh, study plan, my advisor helped me. Uh, come up with an actual study to test how playing with a video game that was a little bit that's um, it's a, a modern video game it, it was a modern video game could uh, uh could could uh, uh, I'm I'm sorry <laughs> I'm getting jumbled uh, essentially how a, a more a more modern video game could help in reducing in improving mood and reducing stress so we devised the study in which I used the um, the profile of mood states questionnaire to test for mood, and I or I originally started using cortisol to test for stress. Though I we dropped that measure shortly into the study because we just I just didn't have the resources to uh, to use cortisol. So um, we kept on going just with mood for uh, for a long while. We made a a, fir- a first exp- a first experiment in which we sampled forty seven participants, and then. Already one year into the study, I decided to include psychophysiology as well. Uh, two measures, particular three measures particularly: heart rate, uh, beat-to-beat intervals, and uh, also galvanic skin response uh, were measured as well. And 
ultimately uh, we tested 20, it was 27 participants for the experiment too. And surprisingly enough for such a, uh, for, a for a study that I kind of thought of when I didn't have many, much experience with research, we actually did obtain some results with it. We saw some change, significant changes in mood and also in galvanic skin response. In galvanic skin response, and it's it's amazing because it's it's currently undergoing peer review mm -hmm. and uh, the publication process. And I hope I can get it out published out soon. Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. What is the ratio between like quantitative versus qualitative study? There, I didn't really take any qualitative measures. For, for that study, it was, it was always like uh, quantitative data, like the questionnaire that I use, the POMS, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a numerical scale, and we, of course, run statistics on, on it, um, particularly independent, independent group T-tests. There was no need to do anything uh, fancier than that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Galvanic Skin Response, I even made our scripts to process, the, to process the GSR signal, and... Uh, Calculate some ca calculate some statistics with that too. The other measures that I use are uh, heart rate and uh, beat to beat intervals. The uh, I for beat to beat intervals I per I used a specific measure called uh, root mean square error uh, R R S M E right. It's it, it's not really RMSE, like root mean square error. It's called R M S S D. It's a oh my god I. I, I always try to, to I always try to make, uh, to remember that acronym. It's yes, the root mean, mean square difference of the of the, of the beat to beat intervals. Got it. But uh, I, I I used a, I used a, a program called QBSHRB to analyze that, and uh, and that's that's pretty much it. Like I, the only custom script that I made was for the GSR because I had to smooth the signals pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Sort of. Um an unrelated note you know to to that but uh i'm just curious you know what what is what are you excited about uh, given the current development of like vr and AR, you know and how do you think this this technology gonna gonna affect our uh, younger generation given your hands-on experience with, with this study i am very excited because it's it's definitely a, a step up in entertainment industry. Like I have a, I have a, my own VR headset as well. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience to play with them. But on the at the at the same side, I am also cautious because technology that technology sometimes can be immersive, very immersive. And I don't, I don't think, at least to my knowledge, there is any long term studies on the effect of long term exposure to like. Uh, continuous VR video gaming, and especially as you add further elements like haptics or even treadmills to move within the with, within the virtual environments, uh, I think further studies needed to uh, see how um, that can can affect can affect psycho uh, your human behavior and physiology. Like I have one particular thought in mind. It's like imagine you're playing a first-person shooter. And this time, instead of just seeing in the screen when you get shot, imagine if you feel it with a haptic. You not just like see it by a, like a like an avatar, but also actually experience the impact of that real time. Exactly, that's yeah. my point. That's why I believe it needs it, it needs further research, and of, uh, and that's just with the VR element of it. Like if we start getting into how would you 
go about using brain machine interfaces and actually control your avatar with your thoughts as I hope one day we will get yeah then it, it, it's just a, a different level from current video gaming research I believe definitely um, so during your time at Nova South then you were also involved with the um, clinical system biology lab at the uh, Institute for Neuroimmune Medicine as a research assistant so um, how was your experience at the lab I can I can I can only say it's been amazing. The, I work primarily with Dr. Travis Craddock. He's been one of one of my best mentors in my life so far. I started working with him briefly in 2015 when I first transferred to Nova Southeastern University. I just happened to be uh, one of the few uh, at that time biology students that could uh, program in MATLAB when they needed a MATLAB programmer. Mm-hmm. So I got uh, I got bring, brought into the lab and I started doing some uh, basic basic uh, simulations with them back then. Though I had to stop for a while because I started with my brain machine interfacing project and that kind of, I just didn't have time with all my coursework and the thesis, I didn't have time to also work an extra in the lab. but. Once I finished my undergrad, I, I I took my computational neuroscience course with him as the only student. It was a tutorial class, and I was very much interested in in keeping in keeping in remaining in contact. So he he allowed me to to stay in the lab and keep working on his project, which is the one I've been working with for the past year. Using, using the discrete logic to study complex regulatory dynamics. Essentially, uh, the goal of my research is uh, using using logic to study uh, the regula- the biological regulatory dynamics of uh, immunological networks involved in diseases like uh, golf war illness or chronic fatigue, fat- fatigue syndrome. We go, uh, essentially, simulate what in mathematics you would call attractor states, which kind of... Uh, kind of mimic what you would call a biological homeostasis, the hypothesis being that perhaps those complex uh, diseases like Gulf War illness that are not just one part of your body being sick, but it may be a whole uh, body-wide disturbance. It's just that your body gets locked down in a, in a different, in a, in a ill homeostatic state. So the, my, perp, my my research involves uh, simulating, identifying, and simulating treatments that could turn uh, one of those sick homeostatic states that we find during our simulations and turn them back to a healthy state. Using using just computational uh, simulations, we uh, it's actually exciting because we get to use uh, UMs, University of Miami uh, Pegasus supercomputer. It's a lot of iterations. So we kind of need that kind of uh, computational power, and uh, we also get to see uh, how our how uh, the attractor states that we find align with uh, biological data using uh, Brown statistic. Mm-hmm. So not only can you see the computational aspect of okay, uh, this treatment may work, you also see how uh, your simulations align with uh, biological data and see like okay. The, this state that looks like it's very disturbed uh, actually is the one that aligns with Gulf War illness the most, for example. Yeah, I'm just curious, what, what can be like potential application of your, of your current, this research that you, you talk about? I mean, the most obvious application is if, 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 if uh, research supports a particular treatment 
you could uh, you could actually try it on 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 actual patients and run clinical clinical trials. That's the hope that with uh, ident us identifying treatments for these uh, illnesses, that it, it, one day they can turn into actual clinical treatments that work. You talked about this before, but uh, in addition to getting your degree in psychology, you also um, minor in applied statistics. So what were some of the most uh, useful courses that you took uh, for doing this minor? Definitely uh, applied multivariate statistics. It was... Uh, well, first of all, uh, the first uh, the, the first component of the course was always a, a linear algebra refresher, and in, since I uh, since I started working in data science, I've noticed that without linear algebra, you're lost. Mm -hmm. Like you you won't you won't you won't get it. So definitely, I love that little refresher aspect of linear algebra, and I loved uh, that at the end of the course we started touching on things like. Um, clustering analysis, uh, dimensionality reduction. It was by far the most useful course to me down the line when I started uh, doing data science. Yeah, and um, I agree. Like, I think I think the majority of, um, of like uh, statistical modeling deployed in the industry these days still rely heavily on on unlike linear regression techniques of that nature, right? So, so have a have a full, solid, you know. Um, understanding of the the fundamentals of like what you just mentioned, uh, regression analysis and linear algebra is, is quite critical to to really um, uh, know how to implement and, and understand the the underlying working of your, your algorithms. So um, in your senior year of college, you also did an uh, internship uh, in hockey analytics for the Florida Panthers. So, That's correct. That that was that was my first contact with uh, real world analytics. If mm -hmm. if I say if I must if I must say, uh, I or, I originally got uh, that internship through my mentor, Dr. Jason Dr. Jason Gershman. He was uh, at the time uh, friends with the uh, director of analytics of the Florida Panthers Hockey Club, Dr. Brian McDonald, and uh, I went to a talk he gave at Nova Southeastern University, and I kind of like wanted to show him my CV in order to get tips of on what areas could I improve in order to one day land a job as a data scientist. And a couple, couple weeks uh, later, he actually contacted me saying if I would be interested in doing an internship with, uh, the, as an analytics intern in, in the team. And I jumped on it, of course. Uh, at first, it involved a lot of data collection. Mm -hmm in which we tracked uh, several uh, actions of, ho of ice hockey players, like the way they entered the, uh, the offensive zone, the way they exited the, the defensive zone, the locations in which they shot on goal, and where they were aiming. So um, once we started getting uh, a good amount of data, I actually uh, inquired if I could run my, my very first say analysis i i decided i wanted to to um, try to do a clustering analysis of their shot locations and, and it actually took me took me an entire semester of the, of doing so but it came out it, it came out really nice i managed to to present it to him and to my professor dr gershman and that 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 became my 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 first actual data analysis for a business it was exciting so i kept i just kept going <laughs> Location data, isn't it? Because like you, you do, do try to collect data, like 
where the player shot, whether they entered the field. So it's like a bunch of specific location data, isn't it? That's right. correct. We at the time we tracked uh, what was the desists. Like we tracked the the player who who passed the puck to the player who actually shot on goal. Mm. The location where the puck was uh, was shot at. Like we 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 had a camera angle that allowed us to see uh, where the puck was actually was actually going where the when when they when they shot it. So we tried to locate. We tried to figure out the location. So it's like, okay, they were shooting in the top right corner of the goal, for example. And uh, essentially, it's like you you could uh, essentially see and cluster those locations to see, like, okay, are are they sh are they shooting off target? Are they shooting in the wrong location? Kind of things like uh, kind of like that. How was your job search process after finishing college? It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't too much of a job process, if I'm honest. Uh, the, my job with Motion Point, I originally met Motion Point in a job fair at Novos of Eastern University, mm -hmm. and I, I originally uh, it was it was uh, my uh, second to last no it was before my last semester of college. I wanted to do a summer internship. Just I w I, I just finished my Panthers internship and I wanted to keep going with more analytics experience. So. I decided to try and look for, at the time, a marketing analysis experience, and the motion point just happened to have one open. So when I started the interviewing process, uh, they were, uh, I don't think exactly it was the exact profile they were looking for at the time, because I was more heavily invested in programming and machine learning than probably the profile they were looking for. But it seems that um, I probably made an impression of sorts. Because on my last semester, on October 2017, I actually got a call from a recruiter at Motion Point, and they were they asked me if I would be interesting in inter in further interviewing for another internship, and I was like, sure, why not? And so I started interviewing. They made me a, a case, a couple case interviews, to see how I, I reasoned and. A month afterwards, I started working as a as a, as a data analysis intern for Motion Point, yeah. and all the way until uh, until today. That uh, well, last last June, I got promoted to a, a data analyst scientist role for marketing, mm -hmm. and until today. Can you share a brief uh, background overview about the company, um, as well as like you know, a um, couple of reasons that uh, make you excited by working there? Well, uh, at Motion Point, we essentially uh, uh, translate and the well, we ha we help clients translate and deploy multilingual websites in order to aid them in their localization efforts. We essentially uh, try to optimize the user experience of companies in foreign markets. So, for example, uh, a U.S. company operating in in Saudi Arabia, we it may be it may be good for them to have uh, Arabic in their website in order to improve the user experience and ultimately their revenue from their uh, their business all over there in 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 Arabia Saudi Arabia. So uh, what makes me excited to work there? It's very simple. It's a company that um, that just when I uh, when I got hired was starting to get uh, serious in in the in analytics, and that has given me the chance to pretty much work on every single niche of data science from. 
uh, very basic routine work in Excel all the way to machine learning classification, passing through natural language processing and sentiment analysis. Mm -hmm. I've managed to get my hands into a lot of projects and hone my skills in a lot of different areas of the field. I see. So you mentioned that you start out as a uh, marketing data science intern. So what were some of the um, interesting projects that you have worked on during that time? Well, the most exciting project I've done so far for Motion Point, I would say it's definitely the sentiment analysis I made out of the, out of our salespeople Gong Calls. Gong is a service to record sales calls and later on to coach, but it also outputs some transcripts based on a speech-to-text translation. And I decided to grab those transcripts and try to see if sentiment correlated in some in in some way with um, salespeople performance and ultimately with closing deals. Mm -hmm. I haven't really uh, been able to make a connection yet between sentiment and closing deals, but I certainly have. Uh, I certainly figured. Uh, oh, sorry, I certainly uh, produced results that uh, show the sentiment patterns of the of our top uh, of our top sales representatives. And I also discerned things like the questions, the questions that our prospective clients ask us, the questions that we ask them, the top, the, the most prevalent topics of our of our phone calls using uh, LDA, uh, and also uh, I try to I try to make my own uh, version of a sentiment analysis over time of the call. That uh, I never really uh, finished it up, but it's up on my to do list. Mm -hmm. It's. It's, 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 I will never forget. I, I, I wrote almost a hundred pages worth of sentiment analysis report, I see. but it was just too, it was just a lot to say. Can you go a little bit more in depth? Like, you know, what, what sort of modeling or algorithms that you, that you uh, utilize? Of course, uh, for the, for the sentiment analysis component, I, I, I based myself used R. I used a function from a package called QDAP called polarity, mm -hmm. like mo 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 most, most of the time. Uh, it's uh, most of, some people uh, like to do sentiment analysis based on machine learning, like when they already have a training set with uh, sentences labeled as positive or negative. I didn't have that at the time, so I had to rely on a on a more like lexicon based approach in which you have a, lexi a lexicon. In this case, I believe Qdub uses the Bing sentiment lexicon, in which you have certain words labeled as more positive or more negative, depending on what was what was the in the people who built those lexicons. In addition, it also um, takes into account like word modifiers. For, for example, good would have a positive value of one, but if you have a phrase called not good, then that will be minus one because of the negator. Mm -hmm. So that's how I started calculating the sentiment. I aggregated the calls of the of each sales representative based on uh, our sales stages and i derived the the polarity out of that in you know uh in terms of the of the more uh, in terms of for example identifying questions that were asked i pretty much built my own regular expression that tagged questions in which as long as the, as they saw like a question mark and a, and a question and a word related to a question like how where when it kind of grabbed that uh, that group of letters, and to my surprise, it actually uh, turned out to grab a lot of questions that seemed to make sense. 
So I probably managed to grab around seven seven hundred and forty eight questions that were that were that were relevant, and people loved it. So I just let I, I just kept uh, kept using the same regular expression. I see. I see. As for the topics of the call, I use a Latin Dirichleta allocation (LDA), mm-hmm. and uh, it seemed it it seemed to work. It seemed to work well. Like it, 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 I, I, start, I, I identified around five topics that were prevalent enough in our calls to make a case. And again, we even we even devised cases and placed for our calls based on those topics. So I think it made an impact. Since last June, you have. Um transition into a full-time uh, analyst on this role at the company. How has this transition been like? I really didn't feel it that much work-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an intern, I, I believe I was, uh, as, a, as an intern, I was already like tasked with uh, most of the heavy lifting in terms of like data science and data analysis. And the promotion seemed uh, more like a formality than anything else. The work has continued in the same fashion. Um, I, 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 I pretty, I'm pretty much in charge mm-hmm. of uh, handling all the heavy math involved in the data analysis, along with my colleagues, which are more like business oriented. They kind of serve as a bridge between me and the ultimate decision makers. What is the current biggest data science challenge that you are working on at the moment? Definitely, the. Uh, one of the one of the projects that I that I've actually had had to do uh, of late for Motion Point has been trying to um, score accounts for for a sales funnel. With, uh, what I mean with that is essentially trying to when you see an account based on its characteristics, give like a probability of an of uh, be of turning into a closed deal or a qualified opportunity. Mm. So one of the biggest challenges that we had that we had before I came into Motion Point is that there was no really a profound effort for data collection. So when you when you when you opened our our CRM sales uh, our Salesforce CRM, you saw a lot of information related to firmographics like the sector, the annual revenue, the employee size of the company, but those and those variables were simply not descriptive enough to build like a classifier and say like because it's within these parameters it has 80 percent probability of turning into a qualified opportunity it was just not precise it was a mess so we i des- uh, i decided to um, to recommend using a survey that i built in order to uh, gather more granular data that can actually that could actually help me out with uh, building a classifier like what's the pain level related to translation what's the give me a give me a free a free text response of like what is the what is the customer current needs in terms of localization things like that uh, more fine and more fine and more granular information mm-hmm. once that uh, once that process of data collection was fairly advanced and we had like a year worth of data or at least we tried to have a, a year out of data because we still had a lot of um, incomplete and, mi- and missing data of salespeople just not filling it out i could actually uh started i actually started building the building the classifier i used uh, a simple uh, multi-layer perceptron a neural network and I wouldn't say it's a it's a it's a marvel, but I 
th- I, I am fairly confident that it's around 70% accurate in identifying what, uh, from the accounts we appoint, turn into a qualified opportunity. It's and it and it's still improving. Like it's far from finished. Like I don't consider that finished because of what I'm saying. I'm the more data you have for machine learning, the better. You mentioned in the pre-show chat that you are quite heavily involved with the DataCam community. So can you describe uh, such involvement? I've been aware of DataCam for like around four years now. I, that's where I started uh, doing some of my learning for machine learning. That's where I started learning machine learning. My very first uh, knowledge of that was through a couple courses that were in, in, in R back then, back then in DataCam. So after... Uh, it's it's after after all after all this time that after uh, like uh, when I made like third when I used, when I did like thirty five courses or something or it, it should it was around there I decided to give it a shot and write a tutorial. They have a, a community full of active people that are just knowledgeable and marvelous, and I wanted to try to contribute, especially um, after I after I noticed that for example. One of the things they didn't uh, they didn't address in those in the tutorials that I had in the community was Markov chains, and it just happened that for Motion Point I was trying to estimate sales velocity using a mark, using the transition probabilities between our, our sales stages, and I and I was like once I finished it, I was like maybe this would make a, a good example for a tutorial, and some people can use this sort of analysis down the line, so. I requested the, the the community moderators if I could write a tutorial, which, to my surprise, they said yes, and I started writing the tutorial, and ultimately published it. It must it, it that this was back in in August of 2018. If I I wouldn't I wouldn't say it got like amazing like like amazing success like some other tutorials I see in there that are mostly about deep learning and neural networks that get a lot of attention. But it did have moderate success, and I believe, and I, 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 I uh, got comments into my tutorial that I replied to people. People seem to appreciate it, mm-hmm. and I just love giving back, especially to us, to a site and a community that helped me out so much when I started. Definitely. Recently, uh, I also wrote a second tutorial, fuzzy matching strings in Python. That it's also based on a project I did for Motion Point, but. I didn't, uh, this time I made it much more general, like just uh, certain tools like Levenstein distance that you can use to find the similarity ratio between two between two strings. And well, it, I, it finally got published uh, in fe- February 6th and it's, it's, it's up there for anyone that wants to see. I, I, I hope it helps people just like my first one. I'll be sure to include those links into the show notes so people can take a look at those articles. Yeah, like Marco Train is, is definitely one of those uh, less uh, underappreciated topic in, in data science because um, I, I think like it is such a very um, important component, especially in like, say, reinforcement learning algorithms, you know, Marco Train is, knowledge is, is quite important. And uh, I'm glad that you, um, you uh, did some sort of tutorial on, on that topic. Um, nowadays, it, it seems like people are very keen in uh, seeking data scientists with backgrounds in uh, math or computer science. Uh, so, would you mind discussing the value of having a degree in uh, psychology uh, and neuroscience for a data science role, uh, given your own experience? It's perspective. 
the value of that is perspective. Like with a math or a computer science degree, you certainly learn the technical aspects of the job. Like you learn all the mathematical fundamentals that underpin like algorithms like backpropagation for sure. With computer science, you learn the coding, the software, the, the software development aspect. But ultimately, you're analyzing data to uh, to help a business, to help drive business decisions. Uh, you are not going to be, you're probably not going to be uh, writing a report for an analysis describing all the mathematical intricacies of the algorithm you used. You're going to be explaining explaining things like the business value of your analysis the insights you can derive from your numbers. And having a background in psychology, especially something like marketing, can help you a lot with uh, under, uh, understanding behaviors in things, for example, like sales calls. Mm. Why does this representative have much, much better, brings the sentiment to the prospect to its level? Why, why, does, he do that? why does he do that? How, wh what is the technique he's using? Why are they asking us? Why are the prospect asking us these questions? Those are behavioral questions. They are not mathematical in nature, and it's something I, with a background in psychology, can, I believe, gives me an edge to interpret over something someone with a math with a pure math background. At the same time, neuroscience, especially especially someone like me, which I find uh, particular joy in co and like in computational neuroscience it's uh, it's as technical as computer science or, or mathematics in itself it's based on it's ba it's based on those disciplines so as i as i it's it's the reason why i chose to study uh the brain instead of a computer instead of just computers as such in software engineering the more i understand the brain the more i think i can i can I can bring that insight into developing machine learning, for example. Like I will always cite the cite convolutional neural networks. They remind me a lot of the how the the brain processes visual information in the in the occipital lobe, for example. And I believe uh, the more you know about neuroscience, if you combine that with uh, programming and math, the more likely you are to be uh, to develop something special in the field of machine learning and AI. Recently, I've, I've been like reading quite quite a lot of books on um, on like this whole sort of revolution of like you know deep learning and all, and a lot of the milestone in in um, in the development of the field is based on inspiration from the human brain itself, right? So a lot of these neural networks are are, are being built because of like you know advancement in like you just mentioned neuroscience and and in psychology people who pave the, the way apart so so computer scientists can can take advantage of those uh, ultimately you know this whole field is like the intersection between you know math cs start uh and like psychology neuroscience so in order to really really like um uh, make make progress in, in the whole field you kind of have a little bit of knowledge about from from each of this field Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you of course need everything of everything. Like you can't be a data scientist if you don't know math. That's for sure. Let's say for for you know uh, math and CS student who want to get into data science right right now, and they want to you know develop a better perspective. They want to understand more how to like keep our business value. What could be your advice for them? You know what um, what sort of like resources or or any stuff that you would recommend for them to to equip 
um, to to learn more about like sort of the behavioral aspect of the job. For anyone with a math or a computer science background to be successful as a data scientist, I would um, I would certainly say say that try to try your absolute best to learn about business. If as I was saying before, you can. Uh, you can be excellent technically, be able to describe backpropagation algorithm in, in your sleep. But um, ultimately, if you do not know how to expand that into a into uh, the sorry, if you don't know how to explain the um, the value of your algorithms or your analysis to a business person, and that is the decision maker, it's like if you were talking ancient Sumerian, you you won't be listened to. You have to explain mathematics in a business-friendly way so everybody understands the value of your research. So my advice, it's always like keep your, keep your ears open and try to absorb as much uh, knowledge about the business as you can. It also comes very in handy when you are doing something like feature engineering. It's something that, re that plain and simply requires domain knowledge. If you don't have that domain knowledge, you may miss out on uh, in, of variables that can help you improve your uh, machine learning models or more simply simpler data analysis. It's just a good thing to have. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've seen from your LinkedIn profile that you will be uh, uh, enrolling in the Udacity Deep Learning Nano degree in AI starting this month. So, so what do you hope to get out from this uh, Nano degree program? Well, I hope to get I hope to get two things. One is uh, I've been a fan of Uda of Udacity for a very long while, though I've never really been able to get into a nano degree program until now because they're they're pricey. But um, I got the chance of uh, getting into the deep learning nano degree program after I finished uh, the PyTorch uh, scholarship challenge, where they actually taught PyTorch and a, a deep learning framework that I've fallen in love with. It's to me, it's much better than Keras or TensorFlow, and I like and I like it a lot. After that, I was given the chance to uh, enroll in the deep learning nano degree program, so I took it immediately. I was um, I'm marvelled by the project-based instruction that they that, that that they give and all the different projects that the nano degree includes. Uh, one, I think they will help uh, me prune my knowledge of machine learning and, uh, of course, deep learning. And uh, ultimately, I do, I, I do hope I can get a portfolio out of it, like more projects to showcase. Mm. So at this time of our conversation, uh, I want to move on the closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three quick questions um, where, you know, you can keep tactical advice uh, and resources for people who want to seek out them, okay? So sure. the first question is that, uh, what are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? Well, the, I, who would I be if I didn't cite, for example, I mentioned PyTorch before. That's uh, one of the ones that, I, that, I admi that I'm admiring at the moment is Facebook, the research, the AI research group over, over PyTorch. I, be, I really believe that's, that's a cutting edge deep learning framework, very, uh, very user friendly. And it's it's just admirable. Like it, it made people people like me uh, being able to enter the field of deep lear of deep learning with joy, mm. and that's that's just ideal. And then of course uh, I'm I'm a big fan of self driving uh, cars. 
as well. So I I can't I can't help but being a fan of Google, Google Waymo and uh, and all their efforts they're putting to uh, to make to make self driving cars a, a a reality. It's to me it's to me the most cutting edge uh, machine learning AI problem right now in the world, or at least among among the top the top three. Mm-hmm. And I hope I can. I I, re, I really I really hope they get far because well I like I want a self driving car. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and and then of course they have DeepMind. That's yeah. That, that goes without saying. Like training an AI to build StarCraft two uh, professional players, like that's just mind blowing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, I recently just like kind of following the. Uh, uh, MIT self-driving car lectures on YouTube. So like, you know, um, there's this professor at MIT who's like taught a class on self-driving car and his open source all the material on YouTube. And, you know, some of the material was really cool and it was really able to understand, you know, the um, both the, 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 the technical and the non-technical challenges in, in, in building like autonomous vehicle systems. So, you know, agree with you, you know, I'm very excited to see how, how that whole movement gonna gonna develop in the upcoming years in the future um second question is that what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset okay i i've actually given this quite a bit of thought if we're uh talking somebody just wants to enter the field of data science and want to give a grasp of the analytical mindset doing data science uh straight talk from the front line by kathy o'neill and rachel shoot Okay. Uh, I believe it's an engaging intro to the field that simply will help you hit, hit the ground running and give you knowledge to just uh, or, or thrive in the field once you're settled in. Perfect. And then um, the last question is that, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? <laughs> I, will re- I will restate, learn business. Literally, that's what I would say to many aspiring data scientists. A, lo- a lot of the programs I come across and people from academia, starting with myself, weigh very heavily the knowledge of like, I know neural networks to the T, I know support vector machines, I can definitely write my own k-means clustering algorithm from scratch. Like. There is a lot of emphasis on the mathematical technique, but maybe not so much in the business need at the end. And as I was saying, if if you, if you go in with a wealth of technical knowledge that will certainly help you build models, there is no doubt. But translating those models into actionable insights requires knowledge of business. If you uh, there is you sh- uh, aspiring data scientist should always thrive to learn a bit of the business aspect as well as keep honing their technical skills. Perfect. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to uh, end our conversation. So, Francisco, I appreciate you spending time with me today to kind of go over your whole experience, starting with you know your your educational background, psychology and neuroscience, your, your experience doing marketing, data science, and you know as well as a lot of great advice on on. Um, Emphasizing, you know, the importance of, of learning, uh, pers- learning business value as well as developing a better perspective for for data scientists who want to make more of an impact on their personal organization. So, um, yeah, Francisco, thanks a lot, and uh, uh, I hope you know people can get a lot of value from this conversation. 
Thank you very much for taking your time to interview me, James. I really hope I can help somebody with what I said today. As I said, I like it. I like giving back to the community. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.